The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out podcastapps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's podcastapps.com. You're listening to the Insurance Podcast with Pete Tessier and Kurt Wyatt. Brought to you by First Insurance Funding of Canada, the innovator in insurance payments. Yeah, this is calm, huh? You hear that soothing audio track in the background, the nice ambient music. You're feeling kind of a wash of release coming over you. You don't feel stressed anymore. You don't feel anxious. And you don't feel nervous. You're just relaxed. That's kind of what it's like talking with Dinesh Yusuf who is the CEO of Zensurance. He's a really fun guy. But what I took away from this podcast and our chat with him was he's a very calm and focused individual. And how he thinks about insurance isn't kind of on par with some of the manicness and nervousness to compete and outwit the competition through innovation or technology. His view, as I see it, is more of a slow approach to just finding a better experience. We never asked him about the name Zensurance and where it came from, and I don't even know the history of it. But after talking to him and thinking about the recording and thinking about what we discussed, he really seems to be kind of Zen in terms of his approach. It's methodical, it's well thought out. And the one thing I love about Dinesh is he thinks about things in a different way. And that's kind of fun. Uh, One thing you should also think about is education. And as you hear this track and the calmness of it, you need to know that insurance professionals want to take their career to the next level. And education is the key to opening the door of opportunity. The Insurance Institute of Canada is your trusted partner as the education body for the industry by the industry. The Institute offers the highly regarded Chartered Insurance Professional designation and a range of programs including commercial insurance, risk management, MGA and licensing education. Currently, all of the Institute's programs are offered virtually, including virtual proctored exams to protect the health and safety of students and instructors. And if you want to propel your career forward, then the Insurance Institute account is your launch pad. Check them out at www.insuranceinstitute.ca. Now, back to this episode in Dinesh. I think you can take what he says as a belief of someone who came from outside the insurance industry and sees a very interesting yet focused path inside it because he's thought about it in a different way. Maybe we should have some think different ads. You know, the campaign that ran in the late 90s and the early 2000s from Apple. Well, Dinesh, maybe he's a little young for those, but he certainly does think differently. And it's a really refreshing way of looking at the insurance industry and the innovation path we're on. Okay. Here we are, we're live with uh, Donish Yusuf, who is the founder and CEO of Zensurance. And you should know a little bit about it, but if you don't, you're going to learn a lot more now. 
So, Donesh, let's talk a little bit about where you started with this, because I've often heard some of your colleagues from Zenshurance say, we're a technology company that provides insurance rather than an insurance distribution company. And I think that's an interesting way of looking at what you guys are doing and how maybe we should be looking at insurance distribution models. So welcome to the show and uh, let's hear, let's get started. Thank you for having me. So a little bit of background about myself. I'm a software engineer by training, worked at IBM for a couple of years and switched into consulting and spent seven years as a consultant. And it's in that time that I was introduced to insurance. And it was really by accident where I did one project with an insurance company and I liked the people, uh, my, my seniors. And so I just followed them along wherever they had work and they happened to be insurance people. And therefore I became an insurance person as a consultant. And in 2015 and looking at different countries and, and particularly in Canada, I said, there's a real opportunity to think about small commercial insurance products and distribution. When you look at the loss ratio for small commercial, it's very attractive, but it's the expense ratio that kills you. So I I figured, hey, I I know a thing or two about technology and I I could probably target the expense ratio side to begin with and ultimately also target the loss ratio. So in 2016, a friend and I, we quit our jobs and and started Zensurance with with nothing more than some passion and a dream. And uh, it's four and a half years in and there's still a lot more work to be done. To your point of what are we, it is true that we started as a technology company, focused on insurance product and distribution, but technology is only one of the tools that we use. There's management systems, there's operational excellence, there's talent, there's training, there's a number of things that you have to get right in order to ultimately serve the customer the way they want to. So we have to tackle everything at once. It's Kurt here. Just curious then, so you know, tackling the entire makeup of a brokerage more or less is what you're saying, and then mixing in the various products. Have you have you felt that because you're selling in more of a digital environment that it does limit the focus of the products that you sell? Or I know it's mainly commercial, but is even within the commercial suite of products, is it limited? Or do you feel you can be a full, full gamut commercial broker A to Z? One of the things that is a common killer of startups is the lack of focus. So we definitely had to focus on a set of products and a set of industries. Uh, And as we matured, as we learned more, we expanded what we offer. But it still is a very targeted offer. We we don't do personal lines unless we have to. We we don't look at massive businesses. Uh, We we have a sweet spot, and that's where we want to be world class. Over time, we can look at adjacencies, but. It's the small business owner, the entrepreneur that, that that's who we want to serve. And that's what we're building a, a machine around. Danish, when you answer in your earlier answer, you brought up some of the other things of when you're sort of describing if you're a technology company and you brought up things like performance optimization and stuff like that. You're a little bit ahead of the curve in the thinking on that side than maybe the traditional insurance broker and distribution channel. Because you're a big believer in the internal use of data analytics and measurement tools compared to, say, you know, your regular family mom and pop or even established national brokers chain. What kind of value did you see in that early on? And, and sort of how did you arrive at saying, we want to adopt these, this technology and process to build our business internally as well as we build it externally? There is a great quote. I, I wish I remember who said this. Um, what's measured is managed, or sometimes it's said in the opposite, what's not measured can't be managed. So how do you run a business if you're not measuring what you're running? 
and we track absolutely everything, be it phone calls, emails, time to quote. Uh, we have an internal report card for the insurance companies we work with. We're, we're all as brokers used to insurance companies coming to us once a month, once a quarter and saying, here's your production report, your hit ratio, et cetera. We have that the other way around for our internal purpose. So we can evaluate each of our partners and, and see how well it's working. And we're actively trying to improve the performance with our top partners. Uh, and we also equip our team leads and managers on the exact performance of everyone in their team, not as a uh, big brother approach, but more, what do you need to coach the people on so that they can lift their performance? Uh, and it's always with a coaching mindset. We, we draw correlations between whatever the performance metrics are for each person and the activities that we believe drive performance as a way to demonstrate, hey, if only you did X and Y, you could drive, increase your performance by this, and therefore, ultimately, it's better for you. One of the things that I know brokers and, and, and different, like let's even outside the insurance industry, they look at the idea of what an ideal office is. So what's the ideal amount a, a, a salesperson should be doing? How many activities should they do? How many, all the different measurement tools and that. Have you established a baseline of what you expect? And, and, and is that what you've allowed yourself to do so that you know what the bare minimum is, what the exceeding expectations are and what the, you know, your top performers are? And, and does that create a culture of competition or does it create a culture of support? What we want to do is a create a, culture of healthy competition. Folks that get into this business, they're driven, they're motivated, they like winning. But we want to temper that with, hey, you need to win, but your team also should be winning along with you. So the incentive system we've created is the more senior you get, the more your performance depends on your team's performance. But even at that base level, a good proportion of anyone's performance uh, is based on the performance of their peers. So yes, you'll compete, but you have to be collaborative as well. And that's that's one of the things we measure people on is how collaborative have you been. To the point of what does high performance look like? It's hard to know in isolation what, what is the right dollar amount of premium or the bind ratio. But we have a set of teams that specialize by industry. We have about 50 licensed brokers, 110 total people, but about 50 licensed brokers broken into teams and it's, it's quite relative. If you're in a, in a team that focuses on a similar type of industry, we expect people to be comfortable to be compared with their peers. Uh, and then there's quartiles and you, you sort of learn from your peers. So it's all relative and um, the expectations do grow over time as you get more senior, as more of our system is automated, as we as a company improve our processes, we're equipping all of our people to do better and better uh, quarter after quarter. How many years has it been that you've been you've been able to get up to a hundred people now? We started our first employee joined us in late 2016, but we started this year with 50 people, and uh, half our staff has joined us during the COVID lockdown, so we haven't met them. Wow! So, <laughs> so exponential growth, yeah, exponential yeah. growth in 2020. That's amazing. And and the uh, from looking at the website, I can see you're licensed across Canada. How, how's that been? You know, adding extra staff, adding uh, the licensing not just obviously in Ontario, but literally from coast to coast. How's that experience been for your admin team? Do you feel that uh, is Canada hitting the mark on this? Or do you think it's, uh, is that one of the things that's holding you back even? Could you be at 200 if it wasn't for all the uh, red tape that we have in our country? Um, so we operate in nine provinces, excluding Quebec. I uh, haven't really looked into Quebec, so it's not something I can comment on. I don't think licensing has held us back, though I would say it is cumbersome. Uh, on the plus side, 
all of the other provinces recognize the Rebo license. So it's not like you have to get relicensed, but it's a an application form. You have to pay it. So there's a fee associated with it. We're on track to spend almost $100,000 a year this year on just licensing for our brokers. Uh, and we have a portion of one person's time dedicated to making sure everyone's properly licensed or we're meeting all of the regulatory requirements. It, it's quite cumbersome. But I wouldn't say that's what's held us back. It's just it's expensive. Yeah, expenses come in a lot of ways when you're dealing different territories. And I know because I was on the regulatory board for Manitoba, which deals with licensing and stuff and all the little nuances between provinces. And, you know, the nice thing is for most regions, if you're licensed in your home province, you're you're able to sort of flow over to another province. And that that's a good thing. Right. It, it's one thing that Kurt and I well know from our days in IBAC, there's long been um, arguments made for the portability of licensing across Canada. And you think about it, it's, it's the same sort of interprovincial trade barriers that we have in other things. It still happens in insurance. It, it's funny that it hasn't really evolved much, but that's a whole other topics because you're gonna have a few people pointing at rebo right now because there's a lot of uh, outside regions that definitely think they're the holdup but i'm not going to dive into that um so your site's up and running and it's working the way you wanted and and everything but do you feel in a digital world it's finally becoming more affordable for brokers who want to build a digital experience like what does your experience to get where you are now what would you what did you learn from it what would you say to others who want to go digital it's a very tough question. I, in some ways, it's gotten cheaper, but the bar is set so high by uh, people outside of insurance that we've spent tens of millions of dollars building our platform, and we're, we still have years left to where I think it will be at a world-class level. So I think it's really hard for someone to just dabble their toe in digital uh, and, and be a leader there. My, my own view of insurance distribution with a particular focus on small commercial, but possibly would apply to parts of personal lines is that over time, the, the system will bifurcate. You'll have uh, folks that focus purely on that small transactional policy, a couple hundred to a couple thousand dollars. And to succeed there, you have to invest tens, if not hundreds of millions to be the ultimate winner because it, it'll be a scale game just the way it's been done in other countries. And then on the other hand, you'll have people... But yeah, they'll be digitally savvy, but they're more specialists. So this might be the alpha houses that focus on massive companies, massive uh, businesses. You might be really focused on a given industry. And so your value prop is, you know, the ins and outs of, you know, manufacturing of vehicles, for instance, or you're focused in a very niche geography. Over there, you can invest a little bit in technology and be competitive. I think it'll be really hard to dabble your toe in, in the, that lower end, the, the transactional end, and be successful. So I have a hard time trying to figure out what would my advice be to a brokerage that wants to be quote unquote more digital. And then on top of that, it's the, the challenge of not just being digital, but being visibly digital. That right. uh, I think what maybe the biggest misunderstanding of you know this World Wide Web in the first uh, couple of decades of its, its existence, like it was like the sort of there was a bit of humor behind. And you're grinning. So this is a, a recording of a, a no video, but we're all sort of grinning because, you know, it was this sort of uh, you will build it and they will come and tell you, which doesn't really exist when uh, when there really isn't a physical storefront and, and there isn't a parking spot out front for someone to stop and, and uh, come in. So knowing that, you know, how has it been driving business to the door? Like you say, tens of millions of dollars building the door. Now you're trying to drive people through the door. How is marketing these days in the virtual world? 
it's actually been better uh, during COVID. The traditional providers probably were not well set up for a fully remote workforce. I, I, I'm not from the insurance world, but I, when I started working in 2003, I was handed a laptop and a BlackBerry and I started working. So in, in my mind, having an industry where desktops were the norm, uh, it, that world didn't exist to me. And so we see that, you know, you had a, an issue with uh, people not having high-speed internet at home, and that, that's a real problem. You, people not having those VPN tokens to connect to this, their uh, work systems remotely. We were quite fortunate that we didn't have that problem when we decided to go virtual. You pick up your laptop, you go home, we sent people monitors and desks and chairs via Uber to their houses, and, and, and they were set. And so I think when, when we talk about marketing, customers coming to us, the market was flooded because it was taking a really long time for traditional shops to respond. It's just a very hard time. Appetites are shrinking, rates are increasing, so churn is higher. All of that translated into quite a big benefit to us because our volume was so much that we could not handle it. And when Rebo stopped doing licensing exams, we couldn't hire fast enough. Uh, there was a three-month pause. Uh, and then Brett and her team at the IBAO were, were super helpful in getting us private licensing exams, and they've been doing that for others. So we had two sets of 10 people getting licensed at the same time. And so we managed to get 20 people licensed in one shot. So we, we just couldn't keep up with the demand either. And we that's why we've hired 50 or 60 people this year. Demand is an awesome thing. We all want to be in demand. And when your services are in demand, you should think about First Insurance Funding in Canada, who has launched another industry first, which is putting brokers in control of the payments process for their clients. Their newly designed digital payments options form can include your broker's branding and personalized payment methods on one comprehensive form, streamlining the payment process for your clients and your staff. Revolutionize your client's payment experience by offering all your clients their choice of payment method at the point of sale via one easy-to-use digital form that's available 24-7. So the interesting thing here is you're a digital storefront, but you're still human-powered, right? Like everyone thinks or everyone has thought for years that if you go digital, it's going to reduce your human resources, capital, and expenditures and management on the other side. But that's not necessarily the case, is it? And particularly when you're dealing with the, the class of business you want to do, which is that small small to medium-sized business, there isn't a, a catch-all solution to making it efficient. You still require a licensed person. Is that something people don't really understand when they think about the digital revolution? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. There's uh, one person who likes to troll me, in particular on LinkedIn. And every time we talk about hiring people, he says, so much for digital, it's still a people business. And I, and I have never said it's not a people business. You're absolutely right. You need people. You, you, you'll always have humans in the mix. And I think the broker channel is the right channel. And you will always have brokers in the mix. Where I think it varies is uh, if you look at our growth of premium versus growth of headcount, Initially, they were linear. But as we go year by year, the growth of premium is outstripping the growth of headcount. But growth of headcount is still growing quite rapidly because the top line is growing that fast. If we're not growing a couple percent a week, we're not happy. And so it's literally a couple percent a week per week for the last 200 weeks. So that's what's driving uh, headcount growth. But each person is able to do more. And I can see, you know, by visiting your site and seeing the the marketing mix that you're putting out that 
you're driving people to the door. I mean, uh, I picked up quickly that you're obviously doing a great job of SMO and SEO. I had, uh, I think it was uh, Instagram ads on my <laughs> feed as soon as I went to your site, as well as uh, other social media feeds, which it's starting to become more of a standard in, in marketing, I get. Maybe it's not a standard in the world of insurance marketing in Canada. So knowing that, you're using some tools that potentially the competition hasn't used. Has that been a learning process for you? Or like you said, you didn't really come from the world of insurance. So is it that the, the fortunate thing you have going for you is this isn't new. This is just how people sell online. So let's just do that, but let's just do it when it comes to selling commercial insurance. Is that kind of the mentality you've taken as it relates to your products and, and the people you're trying to get to the door? Absolutely. I think in many cases, it's harder to unlearn practices and procedures you know than to learn something from scratch. And so for me, not being a true insurance person, but we have a bunch of very experienced people on the team, there's always a debate. And they'll say, no, no, a certificate of insurance has to be in this format and, uh, as one example. And I say, but, but why? Why does it have to be that format? Why can't we change it, actually make it look nice? Why does it have to be this ugly CZO or Accord form that nobody likes? And as an example, we did make a version that was really pretty and nice. And then customers came back to us and said, no, 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 I don't believe this is a real insurance document. Where is this? And they'd send us an old example. So we actually ended up going back to the ugly version. We just made it look a little bit prettier, but we kept it ugly. So people thought it was legitimate. And and that's that's the approach we take for everything. Speaking up is not just given lip service here. We We require people to speak up, share their view. It's part of the process. Uh, and, and so everyone's debating, everyone's asking why until ultimately we find out what's an answer we like. We always check, hey, is it okay from a regulation perspective? Is it okay from a contractual perspective? Does it meet all the requirements? And if it does, who cares if it's not conventional? Let's do it. Yeah, that that's so bang on. I, yesterday, we were in a mini strat planning session, kind of recapping last year's one, our main three-year one. And we, after COVID, we decided we'd kind of revisit a year later and recalibrate because of the variables that came up. And the lady talked a little bit about about the old way of doing things and how you have 10% who are the early adopters. You have about 70% who are your on the fence. They can go either way. And you have the 20% who are stuck in the mud and don't want to change. And you can have it with customers. You can have it internally. And she said, we think of moving the 20%, but they're the ones who are entrenched in. And customers are entrenched into change. They're conditioned to a certain way of seeing things because this industry hasn't been very pretty. No one's thought about right. dressing it up and making it prettier. But you're at that tipping point where you're not, you're open to all ideas. You're going to move things to that 10% and move the wave that way. I mean, that's just, you, you went back and addressed it, but you can just now incrementally keep changing because they've seen where it can go. You've already introduced the future. Now you just got to gradually move. You just did it faster than they wanted. I think that's really interesting because it, it didn't like the old way of doing things didn't stop you. You still went out and sent them a different looking certificate. And now you, now everyone knows when it gets there. They've just seen the prototype before it ever got there. I think that's kind of cool. Danish, one of the things that sort of led us to this podcast was we were sort of chatting on LinkedIn in a comment section on someone's post. I can't remember the post. And I brought up the idea of bundling and how this nature within the telecom sector has been somewhat standardized and that we don't think about insurance products that way. Your response was, why the heck would you do that? Because everyone hates telecoms and you're 100% <laughs> right. Yet I still cling to the idea that the way we market insurance products 
is a little bit backwards. It's not the same way consumers are experiencing other product marketing. Do you think we have an opportunity to change that? And and do you see an area where we should be taking the outside world of insurance and bringing in those product marketing tactics and even product development to the industry? I think there's a lot to be learned from other industries. Uh, you just pick the industry you want to learn from, and, and it's something that you might say, hey, this is world-class. You have to evaluate it in the context of insurance because it has to has to work. Um, uh, one example I like to give, I do this regularly, looked at all of the CEOs of the top insurance companies. And of the 15 top insurance companies, 14 of the CEOs have only ever worked in insurance. It's number 15 that came from government and is now the CEO. Um, and then even of those 14, maybe nine of them have only ever worked in one company for their entire career. So if you have an environment like that, how are you going to be pulling ideas from the outside and, and challenging the status quo? And the same thing happens when you go one level down. It's largely people from the inside. So it, it makes it so hard to take from the outside and reinvent things. We're, we're like the hockey culture of the business world, right? Like, you know, you got to have a whole bunch of hockey men running your hockey club. The guy's got to be in the, like, you never see a GM come from outside the league. It's always the same recycled names and stuff. And you just hit on it. That's super interesting. I never thought about that. It's true. And and you you take it one step further. I think as an industry, we're, we're not bad on gender diversity. I mean, we could do better, but we're not bad. But when you look at people of colors, 97% of CEOs and top management, be it insurance companies, brokerages, associations, TPAs, I've been through the list. We could do uh, oh, with a lot more diversity of thought and, and it's any brutal. other metric. It's brutal. I mean, I've always said that insurance is powered by women. Like you go into offices, particularly in a retail level, it's so filled with amazing, capable women. And yes, they are getting more and more opportunities at the top. But when you look at cultural diversity, it's terrible. Right. It is. Yeah. I, you're bang on with that. And it's something that I think people need to think about. It's great, great you brought it up. I mean, most people look like me, middle-aged and white hair. And and, <laughs> and, and there's and, a lot of experience with those people. There's yeah, a lot to be learned from them, but, too. It's just yeah, it mix it, it up a bit. Yeah, I had the chance to talk to um, a Humber College class last June and almost everyone in this class and we had a Zoom meeting and there was, you know, there was probably 15 people. They were all from a different cultural, Eastern European, South Asian, you name it. And, you know, they're asking me questions about the industry. And I said, the best thing you guys could do is I said, the thing I noticed first about this is the cultural diversity here. Piggyback on that. That's your strength. Don't let anyone sell you short on what that can bring to the table. And we know the progressive brokers out there. They're building websites that are um, unilingual in all sorts of languages. They're having staff who can speak different languages, Arabic, Hindi, Urdu, you know, you name it. And then Eastern European, particularly when you get out in the prairies, there's a huge Eastern European population that no one's catered to. And that's a strength. And I think there's the, the cultural diversity that can come into this industry is amazing. And uh, people need to think about it that way. Have yeah, you had luck and, uh, in that department of hiring staff and, and offering, like Pete just described, a language uh, service in different languages and uh, and say in different cities where now that you're, you know, like you're saying, a lot of people are working from home? So we've always hired for people to be in the office pre-COVID. And so most of our people are in the GTA. Once COVID hit, we did open it up and we are open to hiring people from any part of Canada. We have someone in Calgary. We have a few people that have moved uh, and are working remotely, but 
uh, their ties are to Toronto, so they'll eventually come here. All of our business, though, is in English, uh, other than you know, if, if a broker has a client that wants to speak in a different language and they speak it, that's fine. But we've um, our website, our material is all uh, is all sort of English. And as a company, that there's more we can do on diversity, but we're 50-50 uh, when it comes to visible minority versus not. There's more work we need to do when it comes to more senior ranks. We do look at this. But what we've done is made a concerted effort to get to those more diverse hiring opportunities, job boards, what have you. And then um, if you have a diverse set coming in, the expectation is if your hiring process is fair, you get a diverse set coming through as well rather than a hard quota that we want X number that check its box and X percent that check that box. Just get the right people coming in, have a very fair process, uh, and then track it. And you know, you talked about growing and, and obviously growing and growing in different centers, growing with uh, a mix of uh, people with various, various levels of talent, like you say, whether you're bringing them on from someone who's new to someone with experience. Now, how about, and this is so far, we've all talked about Canada and Clearly, there's lots of room to grow in Canada if, you only, if you've only been in business for four years. But the platform you built and what I admired about the, 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 what appeared to what I saw at first was that it looked at like something that could scale like into the US at no time flat or like Pete talked about Europe and, and stuff, stuff like this. Is there a, what's the long term picture? Do you guys see that as an opportunity that you've built something that does ha- transcend borders? The platform absolutely can transcend borders. The it's been made uh, so it can be the, the back end and the front end are completely disconnected. And so, if we wanted to connect one versus another to something else, we could do that, and we could transport it into a different country if you wanted to. The real question is, what's the next big opportunity for us? Is it in, inching up into uh, a different uh, size of commercial customer into different industries? Is it, is it home insurance? Is it auto insurance? Is it licensing the platform? Is it wholesaling the capacity? Is, is it something else? Um, and we do an exercise twice a year to say, what's the next thing we want to go after? But we'd only do that once we feel like we have a really solid grasp on our core segment. Uh, and there's still more to be done there. So we, great question. We do ask ourselves that all the time. The US, you mentioned, that is infinitely more complicated than Canada. More states... The rates and uh, forms are filed, and, and they're just uh, you've got the admitted and the unadmitted market. There, there's so much more that has to happen. There's more competitive, lower commissions, and so we just have to look at the opportunity. But it's definitely a question we've asked ourselves. It's actually more than the traditional one to ten size uh, variance. Typically, if you take if you look at Canada, multiply it by ten, that's the U.S. market. In this space, it's actually 15 times because workers' comp is privatized there versus it's done by the province here. So it's actually 15 times larger there. And it's not something we can ignore. So it, it's always on our mind. And forget about licensing in nine provinces. Try uh, every in every state is licensed individually. So they definitely right. have kept it uh, uh, a lot harder for, for someone to make a sort of a, a wider sweeping play. Yeah, there are players that have done it. Um, it's just something to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. I'm always amazed at the initiatives and some of the technology and the efficiencies that the U.S. markets have built into the workers' comp. I mean, that it can be a real moneymaker down there. It's quite incredible some of the expertise that come across in the last year or so of people in the U.S. who play that side. It's interesting. Um, Dennis, when you think about what's going on and, 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 and the appetite for insurance, you talked about like planning and going forward. Where do you think um, insurers are going to allow brokers to expand their market reach uh, across the digital platform? Like, um, 
What do you think the appetite is going to be? Are they going to open up APIs? What do you see happening as insurers push for more digital connectivity through their distribution channel? Something we, we, we battle and we bang our heads against all the time. I was speaking to the head of commercial insurance of one of the large carriers, maybe two and a half, three years ago. I won't name the carrier. And uh, he said, we know that small commercial is going to be transacted online. We know it's going to be streamlined and there's going to be pressure on margins. We just don't want to be the ones that instigate it. But we know it's going to happen and we'll follow. Um, so I think there is a hesitation from insurance companies to, quote unquote, cannibalize that uh, small side of the market. Um, because once it is easily transactable, once you can compare products and prices, there will absolutely be pressure on the margin, uh, I believe. And it's the case in many industries. So I think there's a general hesitance from uh, the insurance company side, but also the broker side to make it easier to shop. Uh, on one of my LinkedIn uh, messages back and forth, uh, this was one of the points of, what do you think would happen if all of a sudden uh, you could transact without friction these small policies and compare products and pricing? And someone very knowledgeable and experienced in the industry said, well, it's not going to bring down the loss ratio. So it's going to bring down the broker margin. And my response was, that probably true. And I said, well, it's really interesting to think that the business model at that size of the that segment of the market relies on friction and lack of transparency to exist. When you reduce friction and you increase transparency, if your business model goes away, that's a bad sign. Um, so I think people are just worried about that. Yeah, that's a great point. Like it, it, that's fascinating. I hadn't really thought about that. You know, I actually kind of want to keep going, but I know we all have time time restraints and stuff. But we're going to follow up. This has been fantastic. I was like the quickest. Well, we got to we got to get back online a year from now because he's got. We got to find out if you're at 200 employees. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we got to catch now, up. You know, now that you got the ball rolling on this, and and obviously IBAOs figured it out how to get them licensed for you, and uh, wow. Brett and the crew there have uh, you know they just got off their massive conference, and uh, so they're, they're, they're they're a little more available to you now. So. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they've been super super helpful. I'm, I'm yeah. so impressed with that what the IBAO has pulled off. Yeah, it's an amazing team. Like I I really enjoy interacting with Brett and Nora and just thinking about them and and all that team. They're a fantastic group of people. They're the two figureheads, but there's so many more around them, and they do they do great work, and it's fun. Really happy to have you on. It was, it was fun, but there's, I mean, I've got a list of things I want to ask you. I've got a list of things I need to think about, too, but <laughs> but um, I'd love to catch up with you in, in the future. Sure. Kurt and I are always around, and uh, you ever want to come on and talk about something, something's picking your brain, and you want a platform for it, we're here for you. Thank you so much. Uh, or or, or actually challenge that. Pete. Yeah, and make sure you challenge Pete on his social media comments uh, <laughs> versus him challenging you. You know, come on, like, like, like yeah. give him a hard time. Yeah, so, exactly. Sorry I interrupted you there. No, Go no, ahead. no. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey no white-haired guy, you, you, you're, yeah, you're getting you in really the way. <laughs> no, I, I'll troll hey, you a that, bit on LinkedIn. Yeah, that's, there you go. That, hey, that's the place to, 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 to definitely express way this industry should be changing and and clearly you know conversations like that are making a difference so uh keep doing what you're doing it's uh it's allowing you to grow a successful brokerage and uh i think uh, the rest of the industry should be uh taking note and uh, the industry partners uh, and the insurers uh, step up and continue to help you do what you're doing congratulations yeah. and, and it, after you've listened to this if you can let me know who's trolling uh danish then i'll be happy to find out because i want to see what this is all about <laughs> anyways thanks again danish this has been tons of fun thank you guys Thanks for listening to the Insurance Podcast, brought to you by First Insurance Funding of Canada, the innovator in insurance payments.
Hi, I'm Logan Anderson, host of the Say the Damn Score podcast. On my show, I deep dive into the sports broadcasting business by, you guessed it, talking to sportscasters. The show has featured big names like Bob Costas, Kenny Albert, and Vern Lundquist, as well as many up-and-coming broadcasters who you may not know yet, but you will know soon. Whether you're looking for professional development as a sportscaster, different career paths, or if you just want to be entertained by hearing some of the best storytellers in the world tell their own stories, this podcast is for you. You can subscribe to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can visit our website, saythedamnscore.com. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.